Well, welcome to the live stream portion of what we do here at Household of Faith in Christ. A little uh, programming note, if this were the radio business, this coming week, well, we won't have the live stream happen on Saturday. It's actually going to happen on Thursday. I'm not, some Thursday something's happening. It's a special day on the calendar. Oh yes, Thanksgiving. That's right. It's so foreign to us to be thankful that I forgot it was Thanksgiving. Anyway, so we're going to have our our, our gathering and our message happen on Thanksgiving this coming week. So um, probably early to mid-afternoon. Don't know the exact time, but you can catch it later if you miss it live. And you can find us online at Household of Faith in Christ. You can connect with all the messages. Uh, we're deep into our series now on Revelation. So if you want to catch up, you can binge, listen, or watch all of those later if you want. Uh, connect with our website, householdoffaithinchrist.com, or you can go straight to sermonaudio.com or odyssey.com and find all the messages there as well. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 20 today, so you want to get your Bibles ready so you can follow along. I would encourage you to do so. This is a message that I have titled simply Millennium, Latin for 1,000 years. Uh, this message is going to be kind of a foundational message to get us through the rest of this chapter uh, Revelation chapter 20. And so we're only going to look at the first few verses, looking at verses 1 through 3 from Revelation chapter 20, which say, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So the word of God is part of our canon, the Christian canon, the Old and New Testaments. They are God-breathed and therefore they are without error. They're infallible and they are sufficient, fully so, to help us know what we're to believe and what we are to do. And so I'd encourage you to always receive God's word as such. And uh, I hope that those with ears today will hear. In a previous sermon, I mentioned that chapter 17 um, is widely considered to be the most complex chapter in the book of Revelation, possibly in the entire Bible. Well, chapter 20, it isn't quite as complicated but the passage that we just read, it is part of the most controversial six verses in the Revelation. This section of God's Word, it has sadly brought much contention and consternation among God's people for many, many, many years. And so today we're going to do our best to uh, uh, ease some of the confusion with an aim at bringing light without adding heat. So we're going to work through the sentences here in a methodical fashion, one image and concept at a time. So we're going to begin with verse 1, and we're going to note here the fact that John does not open this section with the phrase, after these things. It's a phrase that he uses recurringly elsewhere to indicate the sequencing of happenings within his visions. So the fact that he does not say, after these things here, helps us to understand that in this case, there is no time ordering of the vision. Not in this particular case, there's not. In other words, what we read here is best understood as occurring within the same time frame as the surrounding elements of this portion of John's vision. So the fall of Babylon and the demise of the beasts and the binding of Satan, these all 
overlap within the vision in some important ways. And next, I'd like us to note that it is an angel who's coming with the authority of heaven. An angel coming from the throne room of God. Where seated on the throne would be the Father, or the Son, or both. This chapter, by the way, contains the seventh throne room scene within the Apocalypse. There's that important number seven in the Revelation once more. So God is here. He's involved. And yet, it's an angel, a messenger, who is sent to bind Satan. See, Christ, he's so powerful, he doesn't even need to get his hands dirty with this if he doesn't want to. He can simply send an underling. Now, our Lord, he certainly could do this directly if he wanted to do that. I mean, he's God. <laughs> but because he is God, he can do it another way if he wants. And he so often chooses to work through means. And so here's the first practical application question for us today. Do you avail yourself often enough to be useful as a good and effective means of God? He doesn't need you, but he delights in working through you. And so I wonder how often we avail ourselves to do just that. Now, the angel that John sees here is holding a key. And this is a bigger, badder, better key of the abyss than what we saw way back in chapter 9 regarding the angel who was king of the abyss. In that earlier instance, the key uh, was to the pit of the abyss or to the shaft of the abyss. But this key here in chapter 20, it is to the abyss itself. And with it, the angel who is king of the abyss will himself be placed into the abyss as a prisoner. Now, the abyss, it's also translated as bottomless pit in some of our English translations. So perhaps what you're holding in your hands uh, says that. The Greek word that's being translated here, by the way, that gets translated either as abyss or as bottomless pit, it appears, guess how many times in the Revelation? <laughs> Seven. Again, highlighting how important the numerology is in the Revelation. Just one more example of what is really a very sophisticated numerology in this book with all the numbers that are so important. Three, four, uh, seven, six, ten, twelve, twenty-four, um, three and a half, forty-two, um, and so forth. Six, six, six. I mean, numbers are all over the place here. Now, to help avoid some confusion, uh, I'm going to add here uh, an important note. Uh, the abyss is to be recognized as something that is distinct from the lake of fire. The abyss, it's seemingly the temporary abode of demons, but at the end, the demonic is thrown from the abyss into the fiery lake forever. So they're not one and the same thing. Now, bringing up the lake of fire at this time, it would, it would probably would whet your appetite for, oh yeah, let's talk about that. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because that's going to be uh, a, a significant topic for a very soon to upcome sermon. So for now, we're going to return to examining the abyss itself. And we note that the abyss here is shut and sealed. Seals are used to, to mark and to guard something, right? To, to keep it from being opened. No one in, no one out. Remember the seal that was placed on Christ's tomb, placed there by the Roman guards. But that seal is used by the minions of darkness. It had no real power over Jesus and no power over his resurrection, right? However, the sealing of the abyss that we see here in the Revelation, this is the exercise of Christ's power. 
Now, yes, Satan, he, he tried to shut up and seal Christ. He did. He failed, but he tried. But now here we see the tables are turned. He tried to do the sealing, and now he's the one that finds himself sealed by Christ. And the key that is shown to us here in verse 1, it's Christ's key. It's placed into the hands of the messengers from heaven, but it's Christ's key. It's somewhat similar to the, the key of David. That's also a key that belongs to Jesus. Because Jesus, he's the one who holds the keys of death and the grave. And what it locks and what it unlocks, it can be undone by no one save God himself. It's God's keys. It's Christ's keys. Now, the angel of verse 1, he holds not merely a key, but we see he holds also a chain. This great chain, it is strong enough to withstand any power. It can't be broken by any strength. Samson couldn't break this chain. The Gerasen demoniac of Mark chapter 5 could not break this chain. Not even Satan can break this chain. So we're to comprehend this here as a metaphor for God's immense power. Satan cannot prevail against it. In fact, where there are some English translations way back in Revelation chapter 12, it's, it's uh, saying that the dragon and his demonic forces, some English translations say they did not prevail. Well, a, a more wooden, perhaps more accurate way of translating it into English, taking the Greek and putting it in English, would be to say that the hellish enemy force was not strong enough. Yeah, it's true, they did not prevail, but why didn't they prevail? Because they're not strong enough. Satan isn't strong enough. Jesus, the word of God, he, he binds the devil because he, his word alone, strong enough to bind Satan. Actually, this is what we saw the Lord do during his first advent in, in many respects. According to the four gospels, demons were cast out. They were bound in a sense. The devil was judged, bound. Satan was conquered as the world's strong man, at least to a certain extent, right? There's, there's a teaching about this in the Synoptic Gospels. Strong man enters to rob a house, and it's not enough to just simply kick the strong man out, right? They'll just go get reinforcements. They'll come back even stronger than before. The adversary must be bound by Christ in chains of darkness, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, by the Spirit of God. So here's another practical application question. Have you trusted in the strength of our Savior to root out and to keep at bay any devilish influence upon your life? Are you living a life with evidence of having been indwelt by the Spirit of Christ? the spirit which binds the enemy? Or are you too often trying to do things in your own strength? Now, verse 2, this is where the real fun begins. Or not, if you don't like potential for conflict. <laughs> the phrase, thousand years, often called the millennium, in our end times debates, is a phrase that appears only eight times in the entire New Testament. Two of these eight occur in Second Peter in chapter 3, where it says in verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, 
and a thousand years like one day. So there's two of the eight. Where are the other six occurrences of a thousand years? Are you wondering? They're all right here. Revelation chapter 20. Appearing one time in each of six consecutive verses, verses two through seven. So we only have two passages that, that use the phrase in the New Testament. That makes interpretation a little bit of a challenge. So hopefully we can turn to the Old Testament because Johnny is so steeply, uh, or uh, deeply steeped in the Old Testament. Certainly we'll find some help there. Let's get a whole bunch of help right in this regard. So let's see. Let's look there. What do we find? No help. Not really anyway. Nope. Psalm 90. It's the only place in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that mentions a time period of a thousand years. It's the only place. Psalm 90 says in verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight, meaning God's sight, are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. So that's it. So you can see now why nailing this millennium stuff firmly to the wall is... Uh, well, it's a slippery job. In the Hebrew scriptures that John, again, he loves them so much, you'd think we'd find some help there, but there's just this one mention of a thousand years. And the first 26 books of the Greek scriptures, the first 26 of the 27 books that make up the New Testament, there's just one verse that mentions a thousand years. And in both cases, that one time in the Old Testament and that one time in the New Testament outside of the Revelation, the phrase has nothing at all to do with a specific period of earthly history. So, should Christians divide over millennial debates that are sparked by Revelation chapter 20? I would suggest to you, of course not. <laughs> should those who are walking in the way, following Christ, should they go so far as to make their millennial position the centerpiece of their entire worldview? I would suggest to you once more, of course not. Whatever the thousand years means, it doesn't mean that anyone and everyone who understands it a little bit differently than you do, defines things differently than you do, is automatically wrong and therefore is best marked to be avoided. It doesn't mean that. This is an opportunity for the body of Christ to grow in maturity, for the, the bride of the Lamb to progress in producing more fruit of the Spirit. So here's a third practical application question in today's sermon. Does this describe you? Are the, are the bushel baskets of fruit being filled to overflowing in your walk? When it comes to love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control, you know, the things against which there is no law, as it says in Galatians chapter 5. In verse 3 of today's passage, there's an extension of what is said in verse 2. The enemy of God and of God's people is described actually using the same names that were used in Revelation in chapter 12. And, and this enemy is bound and is consigned to the abyss. The devil, that old goat idol, is the adversary. Satan, the slanderer, was present in the Garden of Eden. 
the form of a lying serpent. He was present in the wilderness to tempt Jesus, only to have Christ crush his head as the snake bruised the Messiah's heel. And you know what? He's present today as the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air, as the scriptures describe it. However, there's a way in which he's also bound. His influence is limited by El Shaddai, God Almighty, the overpower. I mean, can you even imagine what the world would look like if this weren't true? What would the state of the world be today if God didn't restrain the evil spirits in some manner? But it is restrained, thankfully. And so the kingdom of heaven advances because the enemy is restrained. Disciples are made because the enemy is bound. The good news is proclaimed and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Sure, the dragon and his antichrist, they wreak all kinds of havoc in this world today, don't they? During their reign of terror for 10 days, 42 months, three and a half years. These are paltry time frames, relatively short time periods when you compare it to a thousand years. This contrast, it's even more dramatic when we remind ourselves that John, he's using these symbolic representations all throughout the Revelation. We've already talked about this with the numbers, number three and four and six and ten and twelve and twenty-four and 144 and so forth, on and on, all this numerology. He's using numbers symbolically all throughout the entire book. Now, could the thousand years end up being exactly, precisely, 365,000 24-hour days as we understand those time frames? Well, sure, that could be possible. After all, God only knows his timetable. If he wants it to be exactly 365,000 days as we understand days, then that's what it will be. But within the context of this apocalyptic final book of our Christian canon, can we maybe make some symbolic applications with any degree of confidence? You know, I think maybe we can here. Carried along by the Holy Spirit, John has written for us, and God has preserved for his people a magnificent piece of literature, and it uses numeric symbolism all over the place. And so I think we should ask, at the very least, we should explore the possibility, is it a symbolic number? And if so, what does a thousand years, what would it mean symbolically? Well, 1,000 is a number that represents ultimate completeness. It's a number that suggests perfection. As we've talked about in previous weeks, 10, do you remember... It's a number of completion of completeness as it relates to the world. Completion within a world, earthly context. Then we have the number three. It's about heavenly perfection. It's the number of the divine. So you have a perfect number for as it relates to completion of the world. You've got the perfect number that represents the divine. So here we are once more with an opportunity to be reminded why we all learned how to do arithmetic when we were back in school as, as youth. What is 10, again, the number for the world, completion in the world, to the third power? Three, again, the number of the divine. What is 10 to the world, to the third power? In other words, what is 10 times 10 times 10? It's 1,000. 
So 1,000, it implies that the world is perfectly leavened and pervaded by the divine. That is how some people have put it. So this, in some measure, I think is what is meant by the nations not being deceived any longer. The nations, that's biblical speak for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. See, God had revealed himself to the people of his old covenant, and now, God, he reveals himself to the world, to the, the nations with the new covenant. And the serpentine dragon can't do anything to stop God from achieving his end. Satan cannot thwart God because God has bound Satan to a certain degree to accomplish God's ends. And Satan has been thrown from heaven. Remember Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Let's keep in mind, the, and always try to recall, the preeminent purpose of the Revelation. Its preeminent purpose is that it's a word of comfort. A word of comfort from God to his people. The fact that the enemy is bound, at least to a certain degree, so that God's purposes don't get thwarted, that should, that should bring us great comfort. So it should help us to, to hang on, to not be shaken. God is in control, even when it doesn't seem like it. God is in control. This is not just the message of the Revelation. This is the message of the entire canon of Scripture, right? Our Lord's heart for encouraging His people. It's, it's evident all over the place. One place that comes to mind is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul, he reminds all his readers that the Lord Jesus is coming. He's on His way. He's coming. And He is gathering His church together for Himself. He's gathered them to Himself, for Himself. So we needn't be alarmed. We shouldn't be deceived when we, we see apostasy and lawlessness on the, on the rise all around us and the rise of ungodly religion all around us. What's going on? Where is God? He's there. He's in control. God's in charge. We need to be reminded of the, the apostolic teaching. We need to always remember what the, the faithful have always heard from God, what we are to receive from God. The evil one is now restrained. God has always been in control of his creation. Never one time for even a microsecond has God lost control of anything. And in time, all will be revealed to us and God intends for us to see as we will no longer see through a glass dimly. In the meantime, of course, there is still evil in this world. We live in the already, not yet. Certain things are already true, but not yet fully in the way that they will be. So yeah, there's evil in the world. But it's evil that is restrained by God. By His common grace at the very least. So praise the Lord. In the end, all practitioners of lawlessness, they, uh, they will be slain. If they don't repent, they will be slain by the breath of Christ's mouth, by the, by the word He speaks. And the final end, well, that arrives with the appearance of his coming. 
Now, at the end of Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, it is written, After these things, he, meaning Satan, must be released for a short time. Boy, howdy. As this little sentence led to much conjecture. Is this after the millennial reign of Christ? Is this in the midst of the millennial kingdom? Is this addressing something else entirely? Is it a, quote-unquote, literal thousand years? Sometimes called a chiliasm, by the way, for people who like to learn these fancy theological words. Well, it turns out people will understand all of this one way if they see the millennium as describing the overthrow of Satan rather than as the rule of the saints, as do people such as Professor William Milligan, who advocated this particular view famously in an 1885 Baird lecture. Some, they'll see this another way if they see the millennium in what are called dispensational terms, as do people like John MacArthur. MacArthur makes a big deal of verses like Daniel 12.2 and John 5.29 and Acts 24.15, especially with respect to the first and second death as they relate to the, the resurrection, and that's all a big part of his system, and it's a big part of how the dispensationalists would try to make sense of all of this. But then there are others, though, they'll see it another way, if they believe that the, the binding and the, the loosing of Satan are contemporaneous events. They're happening at the same time, generally speaking, but it's just uh, applied differently. This is like many people who are in the amillennial camp, but also people who are in what's called the historic premillennial camp or even the postmillennial camp. Most premillennialists think that the order in which John presents the details of his visions are directly giving us the order of the events as they will play out in history. So therefore, they believe that the second coming and Armageddon, that these things must occur in history prior to the start of the millennium. And that Satan, he will then be released to lead a second great battle, uh, like the one that occurred when Christ trounced the beast and the harlot uh, 1,000 years earlier. So there's this 1,000-year gap between those things. Most post-millennialists think that the war that it symbolizes a historic event, or at least a historic trend, that happens prior to the millennium. But some, however, they recognize there's a recapitulation in the revelation, so they understand things a tad differently, and they end up focusing on worldwide spread of the gospel by people who have already experienced the first resurrection and their conversion and their regeneration. So they therefore participate in their scheme, in Christ's reign through discipleship and dominion within their spheres of influence where God has placed them, uh, leading to fruitful evangelism that transforms countries and cultures and uh, even entire civilization as a whole. That's what they, they would say. Most millennialists, they, uh, unlike the pre-mill and post-mill guys, they don't think that followers of Christ uh, can or should, anyway, expect some sort of glory age in the context of the first heaven and earth. The curse continues uh, to bring suffering until the new creation. And so we are to eagerly await the second coming with hope, anticipating redemptive history's grand finale. Now, too often the Amil position, by the way, is mischaracterized as being merely spiritual uh, no attitude of engagement with what's happening in the world right now. I can tell you that that is uh, not accurate or fair to the Amil folks because the saints are 
active and faithful, they would say, in the here and now. They are martyrs, they're witnesses, engaged with the brokenness that's seen throughout the earth, but that it's to be done with the gaze of the eye always keeping in view the promise of the resurrection and the promise of reigning with Jesus as overcomers who live with God, ultimately in heaven forever. Now, all these competing views, they have big-name proponents who agree with them. All of them do. If you're a historic pre-mill person, well, then on your team, you would have Papias and Justin Martyr and, uh, and Jerome, at least for a little while, until he later on in his life uh, embraced the ah-mill position. There's a, a form of premillennialism. I've already mentioned it. It's dispensationalism. And if you're on that team, well, then your team it would include names like C.I. Schofield and Hal Lindsey. If you're a post-millennial, then uh, you have on your team men like Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley. If you're all millennial, then on your team you have Tyconius, Augustine. Augustine's interpretation actually dominated the church for hundreds of years, almost a thousand actually, almost a millennium, at least 800 anyway, somewhere in the ballpark of 900 years probably would be more accurate. Now what about the reformers? You know, Protestants, we wonder, what did the reformers think and teach on this sort of thing? Well, it was during the Reformation that what is called historic premillennialism began to rise again, to be entertained alongside Augustine's amillennialism. But Martin Luther, he opposed this move. Uh, that embraced historic premillennialism. And John Calvin, one of the other leading voices of that era in church history, he also rejected uh, premillennialism. They both rejected it. To this day, actually, the official teaching of Lutheranism, it doesn't really make any room at all for either pre- or post-millennialism. Uh, they emphasize that God's kingdom is Christ's spiritual kingdom of grace, uh, bringing forgiveness through the gospel. And therefore, it's quite different from the material empires of the world, which... Uh, they exercise power through force. They'll agree or disagree. We all have to at least grapple with certain portions of Scripture. Figure out what, what does it mean? What is, what is it saying when we say that the kingship of Jesus is not of this world, for example, in John chapter 18? What does that mean? He's king, but not of this world? I mean, if he's not king of this world, then what the heck are we saying when we give voice to the Lord's prayer, the model prayer? Right? What do the words mean when we pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Well, at the very least, what we're saying when we pray that is that the, this kingdom of God, it's Christ's rule as king of righteousness and life and, and salvation, and we're asking to see the power of the Holy Spirit to work even in the here and now within human hearts through the word, through faith. And we're saying that we don't experience that perfectly now, and so ultimately we want more than what is temporary. We want that permanently. We desire what is eternal. At the very least, we're saying that. Again, until the second coming, there will be evil in this world. Ungodly secular powers seated in positions of authority. But they will be exterminated on the last day when all enemies are abolished forever, including that last enemy, death. You know, we were just reminded recently in, in, the, in my family, at least last couple of weeks, of that last enemy, death. 
It's an enemy. So many people think, oh, death, it's just part of the cycle of life. It's natural. It's, no, it's unnatural. It was never God's intention, perfect intention anyway, that there would be death. Death is an enemy. And one day, even that enemy will be destroyed and abolished forever. Amen. And we understand this all in profound, brilliant ways when we study the teaching of the Bible as one complete unity, the entire canon taken as a whole, centered on salvation history, centered on the redemptive person and work of Jesus Christ. Any hope of any other means of salvation any hope of any other means of satisfaction, of experience, any sort of shalom, any other means, it's nothing more than a devilish false hope. Our true hope is what is spelled out in Scripture alone. So whatever our end times view, let's just make sure that we're doing our darndest to firmly ground it in the text. What does the text say? What does the Bible say? So one question we should ask about this opening passage here in Revelation chapter 20 is, what is the surrounding context? How can we understand what's being said here? Well, if we pause long enough to do this, we can notice that the verses that are talking about the millennium, these six back-to-back verses that mention the millennium, they are placed in between the scene that shows the overthrow of the beasts and the scene that shows the last great battle with Satan thrown into hell. Now, sincerely, (laughs) believe me, it's true, I do not want us to get bogged down in the weeds of these long-standing debates, these disagreements that have raged for so many years, at least not really in the midst of a a sermon. I'm trying to provide a a groundwork here as we progress in the upcoming weeks through the rest of this chapter. For now, I just want us to try to stay focused on what is really very clear. What's very clear is that Satan is bound, in effectiveness at least, And he's also bound in time frame. There are limits of time placed upon him. That's clear. And it's also clear the text says that Satan must be let loose for a short time. Now that's a rather interesting way of stating things. And today we already kind of touched a little bit on the relative shortness of the time, right? The 10 days, the three and a half years, the 42 months, that sort of thing. The relative shortness of time for Satan's loosing. So for now, let's set our eyes on that one word, right? Kind of that jumps out at me when I read this passage, it's verse. Must. Why? Why must this happen? Is it to test God's people? to deepen their trust in the Lord? Is it a winnowing? Does God use it to to separate the wheat from the chaff? Is it some sort of a 4D chess maneuver by God? You know, the the Lord, he's cleverly out-scheming Satan, setting him loose just so that the enemy will rush right into a trap. Who's to say for sure? We only know that it has to happen. God says so. He has his reasons. 
God knows all things. We know only that which He reveals to us. A large measure of what He's revealed to us is that our Creator, He is a good and a perfect judge. And He is sovereignly in control at all times. Nothing ever gets past Him. And He loves His people. And He attends for good what the devil and what the fallen world intend for evil. And the hows and the whys and the whens. Well, these sometimes are explained on a need-to-know basis. What the Lord leaves veiled remains a mystery for us. Once more, let's be reminded to remember those things that we do know for sure, beyond any shadow of a doubt. We know for sure that God made you. We know for sure that He loves you. If you repent, He saves you from the condemnation that you deserve for your many sins. And if you're one of His saints, He equips you to shed your uncleanness as you work to become increasingly holy and pure. And He has prepared a place for you. We know that for sure. A place to live with Him forever and ever in perfect communion. So keep in mind always this this purpose of the revelation to comfort, to strengthen, to inspire the persecuted church. We have all these vivid images and what seems like this violent imagery and this confusing, (laughs) angst-inducing imagery. But the purpose of the revelation isn't to bring angst, it's to bring Comfort, comfort to the persecuted church who's facing the angst in the real world. But this word of God reminds us when we're persecuted and attacked as God's people, when we're persecuted and attacked for the true faith, for maintaining a a true biblical worldview, we can find comfort in the knowledge that our warrior king, he's already won the war. Satan has been bound. He cannot thwart God's purposes. God wins. He's already won. Find strength in this truth by reading His Word, by studying His Word, by discussing His Word with others, by praying through His Word. And be inspired, if you're a Christian, as you hold to the reality that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God is with you. And hold fast to the reality that the Son of God is coming again. coming again to totally, fully consummate all that he started in the beginning. Earlier in this message, we had turned our attention to the first half of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to turn there now again for the last portion of that chapter to to close out today. um, Picking up with verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. Father, you're such a good God. The people of this world are such a disobedient people. Even those who have been rescued by the blood of Jesus Christ, too often we, who recognize our need for salvation, who are trusting completely in your, your provision for our salvation, we continue to stumble and struggle and sin but by the power of your spirit, by the truth of your word, we pick ourselves up, we brush ourselves off, and we press forward, knowing that by your aid we can finish the race. The enemy does not want to see us finish the race. But the enemy doesn't win. You win. We thank you for this reminder today that you share that victory with those whom you call your own, those who are trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ for our hope, for our sustenance day by day, moment by moment. For now, Lord, we trust in you and add with some earnestness, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's in the name of our Savior that we pray. Amen. I'm going to shut down the stream here. I want to thank you if you've made it this far and encourage you again if you want to find us online at householdoffaithinchrist.com, householdoffaithinchrist.com. Till next time, God bless.